Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. All right, welcome back. We're going to do Festivus Friday coming up in about an hour from now. Uh, we're holding out for a doctor who's going to be joining us here in just a moment to talk about what we've learned today regarding the death of Matthew Perry. Apparently, it was due to um, an acute exposure. Am I using the right word here? Acute effects of ketamine. The acute effects of ketamine is what the toxicology report from the L.A. Medical Examiner's Office uh, announced earlier today. So we reached out to our friends at the University of Kansas um, Health System, and we have connected with a psychiatrist and director of the Comprehensive Depression Assessment and Treatment Center um, over at KU to kind of help. They said he's all things ketamine to try to help us understand if this is used so successfully in microdosing for things like um, treatment-resistant depression, how could such an outcome happen, such a sad outcome? And we were going to visit with Dr. Tyler... Is it Chervested, Doctor? Dr. Chervested. Hello, doctor. Hi there. Hi. Hi, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no problem. So can you just kind of help us understand where it says acute buildup of ketamine? If he was using this for treatment-resistant depression, um, how could we see in some patients this this sad outcome? Well, I'm a little unclear in the, the article that was there. I was actually reading a New York Times article about it um, just before I hopped on. Um, if his last infusion really was about a week ago, it probably was not from that uh, initial infusion. I'm wondering if there was another ketamine source that may have been in play there because, you know, typically when patients leave a ketamine infusion, they're back to normal within three or four hours. And so if his last one was a week and a half ago, I, I doubt it was related to that infusion. And I, I, they didn't really specify if there was like oral ketamine that could have been used um, or if there was another ketamine source that may have been nearby that may have contributed to, to that. Um, so, yeah. I, I don't think I can speak much further to that. We don't usually see anybody have um, long-term pronounced um, problems from the ketamine after the acute infusion is over and they've been let go after observation. It's typically used, if I'm not mistaken, as either an anesthetic or as an antidepressant. Is that correct? Correct, yeah. So it gained um, initial popularity in like the 1960s and 70s during Vietnam as an anesthetic because it doesn't uh, suppress respiratory drive as much. And so people's breathing is not impacted. And then in the early 2000s, we started to use it for treatment-resistant depression and acute suicidality. What do you know about these clinics that have popped up? And we don't know, again, where he got this, if this was being prescribed by a doctor in close contact with him or if he went to one of these clinics. Um but one of the things I read in that New York Times article where there are hundreds or thousands of these clinics that have popped up to deliver this drug. Yeah, so there there are a lot of uh, ketamine clinics out there that are run by a kind of a plethora of physicians. So ER physicians, anesthesiologists, psychiatrists, 
Uh, and, and they've been around, like I said, since about 2000 is when we first started to get the initial reports that ketamine infusions were helpful for depression and suicidality. Uh, it is not FDA approved in the IV formulation, so this is kind of an off-label use for it. Uh, what we use here at the University of Kansas uh, is an intranasal version, and that is FDA approved. And so that's something that, that we use for our, our ketamine. But yeah, the uh, IV stuff is is more off-label. Um, not to say we, we have never done that here at the University of Kansas for depression, but we currently don't do that. Earlier last hour when, when this story first broke, Dana was reading from some source, and it escapes me at the moment, but the ketamine is used in the treatment of depression when it is uh, resistant it being the depression, resistant to other treatments. Is that to say that if you've got really, really bad depression, ketamine is the drug you need to go to? Or Yeah, so, so that's actually my specialty is I, I run our comprehensive um, treatment-resistant depression clinic. And so the standard protocol for, for depression is, you know, kind of the oral antidepressants, uh, things like Prozac or Zoloft uh, or psychotherapy or a combination of both of those. And so you're going to have probably about 60, 70% of patients are going to respond to one or both of those in combination. But there's still probably 30 to 35% of patients out there that don't respond to the traditional treatment algorithms. And so ketamine is one of a couple of different kind of what we call interventional procedures for depression. So another one that's out there is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And then one of the more invasive ones is electroconvulsive therapy. That's kind of the one that has some bad connotations with it, but we still do use that for depression as well. And so ketamine kind of fits, fits into that next tier of treatment that we would use for patients that have uh, depression that is still there after we've tried medications or therapy or both. What are the side effects of ketamine? So the acute side effects, whenever we give an infusion or we use intranasal, uh, typically sedation, so it is an anesthetic, so it is going to be somewhat calming and sedating. Uh, the amount of ketamine is going to dictate how much sedation. So basically the lower doses that we use for depression don't tend to cause people to go into like a comatose state. It's yeah. just more kind of a, a general um, fatigued state. Uh, and then the big thing that makes ketamine um, somewhat effective is it's a psychedelic-like drug. Uh, and so it's not a classical psychedelic like you would see with like mushrooms or LSD, but it does cause what we call dissociation, so this kind of out-of-body experience or disconnected experience. And so that ha happens, and so ketamine is sometimes referred to as a dissociative anesthetic because of that effect. Um, and so those are probably the two most common side effects. Uh, I'll tell you here in our clinic, we also see a little bit of nausea, occasionally some vomiting, um, or maybe a little bit of anxiety depending on psychologically what's going on. But in general, ketamine is, is pretty well tolerated uh, overall outside of, of those few side effects, especially when we're using it for depression because it's a very low dose typically, and patients recover usually within about two, two and a half, three hours. And, and, and doctor, you know, with the case of Matthew Perry, I think there were other comorbidities. It, it's very mm -hmm. well reported, even in his book, that he just struggled mightily with addiction issues over the years and ravaged by opioids, all of those things. I don't know that we're ever really going to know what happened, but if you are a patient taking ketamine, does a doctor say to you, don't go home and get in a hot tub or a swimming pool? just in case? I mean, like you would say to me, doctor, if you gave me an Ambien, don't go drinking a bottle of wine with this. Or drive um, your car. Or, or is ketamine just not powerful enough when um, administered correctly that you could go swimming or driving or sitting in a hot tub? 
So, so um, I, I'd have to think about a hot tub. I'm not sure I've ever that's ever come up. I mean, we don't want you to do anything strenuous or taxing uh, for at least 24 hours after you've had a treatment. So we don't let people drive home. We don't let people make legal decisions. You know, we're telling them not to operate heavy machinery or go back to work. So those are all things that we would tell a patient. Uh, the other thing is there are medications that can increase sedation. So benzodiazepines, drugs like Xanax or, or Valium, uh, opiate medications. And I, if I remember reading the story correctly, I think he was on an opiate. Uh, replacement medication called Suboxone, which can sometimes cause a little bit more sedation. And so when you use those drugs in combination with ketamine, some people may experience more adverse effects. Uh, and so it's not to say that we, we don't use those medications, um, but we use them with a lot more caution. So we would probably tell them not to take them as regularly used unless this was an emergency or they were having breakthrough symptoms. If you're being prescribed ketamine and a doctor is is overseeing the administration of it, how often do you receive it? Uh, so it depends on the formulation or delivery route. So for IV ketamine, the typical therapy is one infusion per week for six weeks, and then you would move into a maintenance phase. For our intranasal ketamine, it's a twice-weekly administration for four weeks and then a once-weekly administration for four weeks, and then after that there is maintenance if you're responding. Uh, and so that's the kind of standard protocol for ketamine. Last question, doctor, because it does say in, in one of the articles I have read, um, obviously drowning was a factor, coronary artery disease was a factor and also it says the effects of buprenorphine i'm probably mispronouncing mm -hmm. that um would that have been one of the drugs that could have mixed and made sedation worse or if you had a patient let me ask you on that drug would you have any concerns about mixing those two things i guess yeah, I mean, that medication is a replacement for typically opioid use disorder. And so patients that have been addicted to opiates are placed on that medication. So that's definitely something that we would take into consideration uh, if somebody was going to get ketamine, just like we would if they were taking, you know, hydrocodone or oxycodone. Um, it's not a contraindication per se, but we want, want to make note of that and say, hey, you're at a probably a slightly increased risk for having some sedation. And we would want to monitor for that. And then we want to kind of follow up with you and see, you know, when you went home, did you take longer to recover? Were you feeling more? Or, um, kind of fatigued and tired the next day, and then we might adjust the ketamine dose down or see if we could adjust the opioid um, uh, suboxone or buprenorphine dose down as well. And so it's just something to be very mindful of. Uh, there's only a few absolute contraindications to ketamine um, therapy, and those are usually vascular in nature. So that would be like um, blood um, vessel dilation or a history of a hemorrhagic or bleeding into the brain type of stroke. Um, short of that, everything else is kind of relative, and we just have to do our trade-off discussion and try to to maximize um, the benefits and reduce the risks. Dr. Tyler Churvested with the University of Kansas Health System. Do appreciate your time and your expertise on this matter. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right. Be well, doctor. Thank you very much. It's sad either way, but it does make sure. sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. a sedation drug. And he was probably horribly depressed. And I, on some other and, things. And, yeah. And, and then and, you get in a hot tub. And I, and I don't, I, I bought his book last year. I don't think in the book he makes any secret of the fact oh, no. that not only did he he struggle with addiction issues, of course, but he also struggled from depression. And, I mean, it, it all makes sense now. 913-586-7798. We will do Festivus Friday, the airing of the grievances, right after the 5 o'clock news here on Dana and Parks.
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.